0: to find out if it's right for you.
1: I worked as a ranger in Northern Carolina for well over 20 years. I've had my fair share of weird happenings and some gruesome ones, too. I found multiple dead bodies during my time working there. All of the killers were luckily brought to justice by the police. But it's not the killings that got me to quit my job and never come back. It was something a little more unexplainable, something so weird in fact that I sometimes still wonder if it was all just a dream or vision or indeed a real event. I'll tell you exactly what I saw from the beginning. It was the middle of August and the sun was scorching the ground with its rays. Not many people visited during the day for obvious reasons. I hated when I had to leave my guard hut to make a tour of the park. That would usually include a lot of sweating and feeling like somebody is roasting you in a pan. I was already pretty beat during my first two hours, drinking more than enough water to try and keep hydrated. As it was already time to go out for the third and final tour of the day, because for the next shift, another ranger was going to replace me, I went on a walk. About halfway through, I started feeling dizzy and a little lost. I felt weaker and weaker up until I could not stand anymore. I sat under a nearby tree trying to get some rest and regain strength, but the sun and heat were too strong. I began seeing things that just felt a little too real. The tall, shadowy figures began emerging from behind trees, walking slowly and aimlessly. I couldn't move or breathe properly, so I just sat there staring back at them. In a minute there were so many of them I lost count, and more began emerging straight from the ground. I was confident that I had had a severe sunstroke. They didn't seem to pay any attention to me at first. They just wandered around and let out horrific screams of pain like... Somebody being cooked alive. Just then, one of those figures had noticed me, slowly making its way. It was over eight feet tall, so it had to crouch down to get close to me. I was petrified, but I didn't possess the strength to do anything. The figure didn't stop screaming for a split second either. It just crouched next to me and put its hand on my cheek. I started to burn. I lost consciousness. Other rangers found me passed out on the ground about an hour later, getting me to an ambulance. I was relieved for a minute, but when I got up from the bed, I saw that red burning handprint. It terrified me so much I had to resign. None of my bosses or colleagues ever believed me. I guess I can't say I blame them. I work in the field of prison corrections, where surveillance is a critical part of our operations. In the supervisor's control booth, I have a clear view of the inmate housing unit control booths where my deputies closely monitor the activities of the inmates. One particular night, as I glanced at the CCTV monitors, I noticed my deputy sitting in the control booth. Curiosity struck me, and I decided to call him to inquire about the person standing behind him. It was an odd sight, because there shouldn't have been anyone else present, as everyone had responded to an emergency call. To my surprise, he replied, he was alone in the booth. Confused, I continued watching as the figure remained there while my deputy diligently searched for the mysterious presence. As soon as he settled back in his seat and picked up the telephone, the figure vanished into thin air. Determined to make sense of what I had witnessed, I hurriedly went to review the security footage, hoping to capture evidence of the strange figure. However, as I meticulously examined the recorded footage, there was no trace of the mysterious entity. It was as if it had never appeared on the screen at all. Ever since that incident, whenever my gaze falls upon that particular camera angle on the monitor, a shiver runs down my spine. The memory of that inexplicable sight lingers, haunting me to this day, even though it happened six years ago. It was during the summer of my late twenties when I decided to take a solo trip to the Uinta mountain range. I had a few days off work and yearned for the serenity of the mountains, eager to camp and fly fish. My friends were all occupied, so I ventured out alone, excited to explore this new part of the wilderness. The first day went by smoothly. I caught some impressive fish and admittedly indulged in a bit too much alcohol. The sun dipped below the horizon, and I prepared my campsite for the night. It was a peaceful, clear evening with stars twinkling overhead. I gazed up at the sky, lost in my thoughts when I noticed a flashlight in the distance. It seemed to be approaching my campsite, but I brushed it off as another backpacker seeking a spot for the night. A few moments later I noticed another light coming from the opposite direction. With a shrug I assumed it was a late-night hiker and turned in for the night. I had barely settled in my tent when I heard whispered voices nearby. They sounded devious, as if plotting something sinister. My heart raced as I tried to convince myself I was overreacting. The sound of multiple footsteps circling my campsite and unnaturally heavy breathing filled the air. Clutching the nine-inch buck knife I kept next to me, I steeled myself for whatever was coming. And then the laughter started. It was a sound so chilling and eerie. It made my blood run cold. The laughter echoed all around me, as if it were amplified by some unseen force. I felt a growing sense of dread... And in the moonlight I spotted a shadow of a face just inches away from my tent. The face was elongated and distorted, barely resembling anything human. As quickly as it appeared, it retreated into the darkness, followed by the sound of running footsteps. My heart pounded in my chest, and I was amazed I hadn't lost control of my bowels. I lay there, frozen, trying to decide my next move. After an hour of agonizing silence, I mustered the courage to take action. swiftly. I dismantled my tent, leaving stakes and poles behind, stuffed it into my bag, and grabbed my belongings. I made my escape, trying to be as quiet as possible, hoping not to alert whatever had terrorized me. I hiked for what felt like an eternity, covering nearly fifteen miles well into the next day and evening. My legs ached, and my fear hadn't completely subsided, but I was determined to put as much distance between myself and that harrowing experience as possible. Finally I arrived at a small town, my ordeal in the wilderness at an end. The memory of that night has haunted me ever since. I have only shared the story with a select few, as the fear it instills in me is still very real. As for the Uinta mountain range, I have never returned, nor do I have any intention to. The unknown predator that stalked me that night remains a mystery, a chilling reminder of the secrets the wilderness can hold. My husband and I had a really frightening experience hiking in our local mountains in the eighties. Both of us were looking forward to hiking our favorite trail with towering pine trees and small meadows filled with wildflowers. My husband was wearing a backpack filled with our sandwiches, apples, snacks, a first aid kit, a whistle, a compass, and bottles of water. We planned on eating our lunch atop a large outcropping of rocks at a place we named Lookout Point where you could see for miles down the valley and cities below. From atop this lofty perch the view below resembled a patch quilt of green valleys, orchards, and cities with their buildings and spalling freeways. With the wind whispering between the pine trees and the quiet stillness of the forest, other than the calling of the Blue Jays to one another, it gave one a sense of being far removed from noise of the city and the stresses of everyday life. It was early morning when we eagerly set off on the trail. We had only traversed about two miles of the eight-mile hike when I began to feel uneasy. Our hike started off with blue skies, but clouds had moved in and stole the sunlight. The clouds seemed to foreshadow the danger that was ahead. An overwhelming sense of dread and danger began to overtake me. The small hairs on the back of my neck and arms stood up, which wasn't due to the cloudy skies and drop in temperature. I felt an animal awareness kick in. My pupils dilated. I quickly began to scan the trees and bushes on both sides of the trail. Like a dog, I lifted my nose to breathe in the air. No longer could I smell the crisp, clean scent of pine, but something else. There was a faint smell of something unclean. Putrid, really. The Blue Jays became quiet. I felt we were being watched and stalked. I told my husband we have to turn around and run back to our car. He could see the absolute panic and terror in my eyes. The words barely escaped my mouth when we heard the rustling of bushes and snapping of twigs about thirty yards ahead, and that's when we saw him. He stepped out of the shadows of thick trees and bushes and stood ahead of us on the trail. He was massive. He looked like a character in the movie Deliverance. He was about six-five. He had dirty brown, wild long hair, and a greasy long beard. He wore filthy denim overalls with a stained white sleeveless shirt underneath. On his feet He had on a pair of worn, outdoor boots, the type you see loggers wear. There was a large knife hanging from its sheath on his hip. His shoulders were broad, and his sinewy arms were all muscle. It was hard to tell his age. He could have been in his thirties or forties, but the outdoors and elements had turned his skin into a dark leather and creased his face. His light-colored eyes were filled with hate and seething with anger. He started yelling at us to get off his mountain. We turned around and ran. He let out a rage-filled, blood-curdling bellow and scream. It sounded more animal than human. It gave chase. We ran like our lives depended on it. We instinctively knew if he caught us he would harm or kill us, and throw our broken and bloodied bodies over a nearby cliff. We ran faster. I felt like we were being hunted by the devil himself. I kept praying to God please God, help us, don't let either one of us stumble or fall on the uneven trail. The distance between us and the man began to shorten. My husband unclasped clasped his backpack and let it fall off his back while running. I wasn't carrying one. Not only did he want to drop the extra weight, but he was hoping the man would stop his pursuit of us to see what was in the backpack. He didn't. After what seemed like an eternity, we saw a parked car in the clearing ahead. My husband had backed into the spot, so the hood of the car was facing the road. Thank God my husband had placed the car keys in his pocket of his hiking pants and not in his backpack. I heard my husband rip the velcro to open his pocket. He reached inside and grabbed the keering that held our car keys and fob. He did this in a fluid motion and without slowing his pace. He pressed the remote on the key fob, which unlocked our car. We quickly opened the doors and scrambled inside and locked the doors. My husband's hand was shaking as he placed the key into the ignition. Before he could start the car, the man hit my passenger side window with his fist with such force. It caused the glass to crack like a spider's web. I let out a terrified scream. He brought his large fist back again, ready to strike my window, which would shatter the glass barrier between myself and him. At that exact moment, my husband turned the key in the ignition, put the car into gear, and his foot hit the gas. The giant's fist missed its mark and hit the metal side panel instead. We sped off to the small village town center about three miles down the road to call the sheriff. We stopped at a small diner and asked to use their phone. We found out there was no sheriff station on the top of the mountain, and it would take the sheriff forty-five minutes to drive to the diner from the valley below. We jumped in our car and drove fast down the winding mountain, two-lane highway. We drove straight to the small sheriff station and ran inside. At the front desk sat a bored-looking deputy. We told him we wanted to make a report. He called the sheriff over, who ushered us inside his office and closed the door laying next to the sheriff's desk was a large German shepherd who abruptly sat up from his prone position. His ears perked up, and his dark, intelligent eyes took us in. Feeling we were of no threat, the dog's body relaxed, and he laid back down. How I wished we had a dog like this when we hiked. The sheriff could tell something had happened to us due to my tear-streaked face. He took our report and then went out to examine our damaged car. My side panel was dented from the man's fist. The sheriff told us we were extremely lucky to have escaped. He said there were mountain men that lived deep in the woods, and they didn't like outsiders or townies snooping around. He said they were very strange and meaner than bull when crossed. He told us it's not the wildlife you have to fear, but those men. He informed us hikers have disappeared in those woods. He advised us to pack a gun if we hiked in the area again. We haven't been back once all these decades later. About four years ago... Three women disappeared in that small mountain. They were not together. The women went missing within the same month, and the last we heard, they were never found. I often wondered if they had the misfortune of running into one of those deranged mountain men. A few weeks ago I was out in the wilderness, having just made a clean shot on a bear. I watched as it tumbled down into a meadow, landing lifeless on a log. I was stationed on a ridge above it and had to navigate a mile around and down a drainage to reach the valley where it lay. Armed with my trusty pistol, I began the descent, leaving my rifle at the entrance of the drainage. The bear hadn't moved for twenty minutes since I had taken my shot from the ridge, but I've learned over the years that you can never be too cautious in the wild. The descent was a bit tricky, with the terrain transforming from an obvious path to a confusing expanse of scrub-brush, trees, and blueberry. As I was moving through a thicket my head lowered and my arms working to part the dense foliage, I caught sight of a patch of white fur beneath my boot. I instinctively pulled back my step, and as I regained my composure I looked down to see a possum. Teeth bared and hissing at me, I was taken aback at first, not expecting to encounter a possum at this altitude, but I quickly decided that I didn't want any trouble with a biting creature. A quick shot from my point .40 took care of the issue, and my adrenaline was definitely pumping. Just when I thought I had my fill of wildlife encounters for the day, I stepped into another clearing. As I emerged from the undergrowth, I froze. There, just at the edge of the tree-line, was a massive creature covered in dark fur. It stood on two legs, easily towering over eight feet tall. The creature was broad and muscular, with arms that hung low and a head that seemed to sit directly on its shoulders. I was a distance away, but I could make out its eyes, two dark points said in a heavily browed face. My heart pounded in my chest as I realized I was looking at what could only be Bigfoot. The creature didn't seem to notice me, or at least didn't acknowledge my presence. It seemed to be foraging, its massive hands pulling at the branches of a tree. I watched in disbelief for a few long moments before the creature moved deeper into the forest and disappeared from sight. As I finally reached the bear, my mind was a whirl of the day's events. I'd come out for a bear, and while I did get one, I had also encountered a possum and, most incredibly, sighted Bigfoot. It was a day I knew I would never forget. In the aftermath of the world's devastation, our small community struggled to survive. Food was scarce, and the once... Familiar landscapes had transformed into a mutated wasteland. As one of the skilled hunters in our group, it was my responsibility to venture into the unknown and bring back the resources we desperately needed. We set off a small band of hardened hunters, each an expert in their own right. But I had a knack for improvising traps and weapons that often made the difference between life and death. As we journeyed further into the mutated wasteland, we encountered creatures that defied belief. Some were grotesque amalgamations of animals we had once known, while others were entirely new species born of the catastrophe. We fought and killed many of these monstrous creatures, and I devised a series of creative and deadly methods to dispatch them. One such trap involved rigging a tripwire to a deadfall, crushing a reptilian beast that boasted scaly armor and razor-sharp teeth. Another time I crafted a makeshift spear from a broken tree branch and took down a massive six-legged creature with the precision of a skilled marksman. But our most harrowing encounter came when we were ambushed by the most powerful and deadly creature we had ever faced. The beast stood on four muscular legs, its twisted form covered in spiked armored plating. Its eyes glowed with a malevolent intelligence that sent chills down our spines. We were outmatched and one by one my fellow hunters fell to the creature's relentless onslaught. As the last surviving hunter, I knew I had to find a way to defeat the beast. Drawing upon my knowledge of the creature's habits and weaknesses, I devised a plan. I studied the predator's scent, marking habits and chemical communication, using my findings to create a synthetic pheromone to lure the creature into a trap. By placing the pheromone in strategic locations I was able to manipulate the predator's movements and create an opportunity to strike. The beast approached the trap, its keen senses drawn to the irresistible scent. As it closed in, I sprang into action, launching my carefully prepared attack that finally brought the creature down. Exhausted and battered, I knew my fallen comrades would not have died in vain. When I returned to our community, I brought not only much needed resources, but also tales of our harrowing encounters and a newfound appreciation for the power of human ingenuity, our world might have changed beyond recognition, but the resilience and adaptability of the human spirit remained the force to be reckoned with. (laughs) Yesterday, me and a friend decided to go to the nearby woods to smoke a bowl and hang out. This wooded area is rather small, but has lots of dense brush. Giving us lots of cover, I brought my brand new glock tool and a can of saber-red oak, just in case. We went into the woods a decent distance and smoked a bowl. I was going to repack the bowl when I suddenly heard some very loud and very close footsteps right behind me. I didn't see the guy, since I was preoccupied with grabbing my backpack, but my friend did. He described him as maybe a five-feet-eleven white male in his fifties, wearing a white shirt and a cap. He had snuck up behind us in a wooded area full of dense brush and dry leaves until he was a mere five yards away, at which point he started to speed walk towards us without saying a word. We both made it out of there and took cover behind a rotten log where we joked about how Sam Fisher just attacked him. I personally feel like someone wouldn't be that stealthy just to sneak up on two kids smoking weed, and that he may have had some bad motive or something. I can post pictures of the location if you guys request it. In 1992 or 93, I hiked up Mule Mountain from a ridge on the southeast end. I was about one quarter mile from the mountain, walking through a small bunch-grass meadow enclosed with old growth. First, elk hunting. It was unusually quiet, so I was walking as softly as possible. I'd stopped to listen and watch when off to my right from deep in the timber I heard very clearly and loudly a sound like someone blowing across the mouth of a soda bottle. It wasn't a bear woofing. There were three split-second bursts in rapid succession, followed by a loud guttural gurgling call similar to a deep trill. At sixty years of age I have spent a majority of my life in the Oregon woods, but have never heard these sounds before or since. It stirred what I call the caveman response, a deep primeval fear that immediately throws you into the fight-or-flight mode. I left by the shortest route possible back to my truck. I have never returned to that area. It's as if my instincts tell me not to, that there's something that didn't want me there. My buddy and I had a tradition of hiking deep into the backwoods where human footprints were few and far between. A silent, serene world where our conversations were the only disturbance to the constant symphony of nature. That's where our story begins, way out there with nobody in sight. One particular evening, as the sun dipped below the horizon, I began to gather some wood for a campfire. Picking up sticks here and there, my eyes landed on a stick that stood out from the rest. It was about five feet long, about three inches wide, the perfect size for a walking stick. Excitement coursed through me as I picked it up. It was straight and mostly smooth, the ideal companion for long hikes. What was really surprising was that one end was smoother than the rest thought bubbled up in my mind. Had I stumbled upon a fellow hiker's discarded walking stick? My fingers traced the meticulously whittled end, admiring the craftsmanship. But as my eyes took in the details, I realized, with an escalating sense of disbelief, that it wasn't a handle. Not even close. It was, unstakeably and irrevocably, a penis. A phallic masterpiece carved into the end of this seemingly innocent stick. I was holding a literal dick-stick, My initial shock quickly morphed into odd fascination. This wasn't just a quick, crude job done out of adolescent boredom. This was a work of art, carved with purpose, precision, and, bizarrely enough, affection. The details were intricate, right down to the carefully etched veins running along its length. Whoever had created this had invested hours, if not days, crafting this unique piece of art. Stunned. I showed it to my buddy whose wide-eyed expression mirrored my own. We burst into laughter, the echoing sound a stark contrast to the silence of the surrounding wilderness. There, under the stars, we shared a moment of surreal hilarity, the product of someone's bizarre pastime. From that day forward our hikes took on an extra dimension. Every stick picked up was scrutinized, and our campfire stories had a new, undeniably strange champion. The forest, it seemed, held secrets far more peculiar than we could have ever imagined. In high school I went with my friends to an abandoned construction site during a full moon to have some beers on the roof, and look at the view. It was high on a hill. As we were leaving, they offered me ten dollars to go down and walk around in the pitch. Black basement. Me lacking any belief in the paranormal, this seemed like an easy way to make ten bucks. I went down the stairs with my phone light on, but when I reached the bottom and turned the corner I turned off my light because I was fairly sure my friends were going to try to scare me and figured I might be able to get the upper hand on them. At this point I also turned on a video with no flash because I wanted to catch their fear firsthand. The Video might be on my computer somewhere. I whispered to the video something about being off the grid and began waiting. I waited around the corner for a couple minutes but heard nothing. Then... I began to hear what sounded like large rocks being dropped down the stairway to the basement. This seemed like the perfect start to my buddy's scaring tactics, so I thought nothing of it. The sounds continued for a while, and eventually I got bored, as it seemed they were too scared to actually come down the stairs, and started slowly making my way out the other side of the unfinished basement. When I reached the car, everyone wanted to know where I had been and what took me so long. Again, I assumed this must have been a tactic to freak me out, "'but then I realized everyone that had come with me was in the car, "'and there would have been no one in the house "'to continue dropping the rocks as I was leaving. "'There was no way someone could have made it back to the car before me "'while continuing to drop the rocks and avoid me seeing them. "'I still don't at all believe in ghosts or the like, "'but I wonder if there was maybe a squatter or someone else in the blackness with me "'who was trying to scare me away. "'The scariest part was that I had absolutely no fear about the incident.' as it was happening, but looking back on it, I should have run out of there screaming. Easily the scariest thing I've ever been a part of. My name is Lieutenant Commander Jack Diaz, and I'm the team leader of an elite group of Navy SEALs. When we were told that a CIA operative had gone missing in North Korea, we knew we were in for a hell of a mission. As it turned out, it was far worse than we could have imagined. Our insertion into North Korea was as quiet as a whisper, the night sky providing us the perfect cover. The operative's last known location was an isolated compound in the mountains. We moved swiftly, avoiding patrols and staying off the grid. Upon reaching the compound, we quickly realized this wasn't just a holding site. We stumbled upon a full-blown bioweapon facility. It was a chilling sight vials of deadly pathogens, blueprints of dispersal methods, and chilling indications of test trials. We realized we were standing in the heart of a potential global catastrophe. Our mission suddenly expanded. We had to rescue the operative, dismantle this operation, and get out alive. Tensions on the Korean peninsula were high. Any misstep could ignite a war. We made our way deeper into the facility. It was there we found him, the captive operative. But this was no stranger. I recognized him instantly. It was Ghost, a former SEAL, a brother. We thought he had died years ago and a mission gone sideways. Seen him again, battered but alive, it was a shock. With renewed determination, we fought our way through the facility, neutralizing guards and sabotaging their operation. Ghost even in his weakened state fought alongside us. He was a SEAL through and through. We set charges along the facility, ready to wipe this nightmare off the map. But we were running out of time. North Korean reinforcements were closing in, and we were still deep within enemy territory. The fight out of the facility was fierce. We moved as one, covering each other's backs, just like old times. Ghost was with us, moving with the fluid grace that we remembered. As we made our last sprint towards our extraction point, we detonated the charges. The facility went up in a blaze, the bioweapons and their sinister plans incinerated. Our chopper whisked us away just as enemy reinforcements swarmed the area. We were battered, bruised, but victorious. As we crossed the border, we shared a look of relief. Ghost was back with us, and we had averted a potential global catastrophe. Mm. But we knew our fight wasn't over. Ghost's existence, the bile weapons facility, it was all part of something bigger, something more dangerous. But whatever it was, we were ready. We were seals, and we nigger never back down from a fight. When I was seven, I was camping with my parents and baby sister in Virginia. We were staying in a campground specifically for RVs, but there were also some cabins available to rent. On the first day there, after being constantly pestered to take me to the park, my dad complained to my mom that I was old enough to walk the short distance to the park and play without supervision. My mom has always been very overprotective and a worrier, and even more so after this camping trip. My mom finally gave in and allowed me to go alone to the campground park, while at the playground I met a little girl around my own age, and we played together for a while. She was also by herself. I invited her to come back to my RV to play with Barbies with me, and we headed in that direction. On the way, we crossed paths with my parents, who were going to another family's RV to visit, and socialize. We let them know we were going to play Barbies in my family's RV. After we played for a little while, she suggested we pack up the Barbies and go to the cabin. She and her grandparents were staying in to play with Barbies, too, which we did. It never even occurred to me that my parents didn't know this girl or her family or where I would have gone. They had assumed we were going to stay in my RV and play. We played at our cabin for a long time, and while we played, her grandparents were packing up their things and preparing to leave the campground. When we were all packed up to go, they said they would drop me back off at my RV on their way so I wouldn't have to walk. Obviously, my parents had always told me to never get in a car with a stranger, and I knew this, but it just never occurred to me that this was exactly what they meant. I genuinely never felt remotely afraid or concerned about the situation. The little girl's grandparents packed up their car, and we all climbed in. We stopped at the campground's general store, and her grandpa bought us both ice cream cones. All I could think was how nice and generous her family was. We got back in the car, and I assumed they would next be dropping me off at my RV. I. I sat in the car eating my ice cream and talking with my friend, completely oblivious to the outside of the car. Suddenly my door flew open and my dad, with tears pouring down his cheeks, yanked me out of the car and hugged me harder than he ever had in my life. I was so confused, and then the car I was in sped away very quickly. It was then that I realized that we were at the exit of the campground. Apparently, upon returning to our RV and finding my new friend and me gone without a trace, my parents had contacted the ranger station, and a lot of people were out looking for me in the woods and going door to door to door to the other RVs. My dad just happened to be walking by as he saw me in the people's car, just about to leave the campground. I don't know who those people were, but they definitely had no intention of bringing me back to my parents.' I think the ice cream was bought to distract me from noticing we weren't heading in the direction of my own campsite. Over the years, I've often thought of that day and how different my life could be if my dad hadn't seen me just in the nick of time. I remember that day clearly. I was in the kitchen, phone pressed to my ear, lost in conversation with my sister. As we chatted, I found myself idly watching the hillside across the creek through the kitchen window. My dogs were causing a ruckus outside, their barks echoing through the quiet of the afternoon. Curiosity peaked. I squinted, trying to see what had them so worked up. That's when I noticed the bushes. They were rustling, leaves swaying in a rhythm that didn't match the gentle breeze of the day. And then, amidst the greenery, I saw it. A figure. It was tall, broad, and stout, covered in long, dark-brown hair. It almost resembled a human, but there was something distinctly primal, almost ape-like about it. For a solid two minutes I just stared, my mind struggling to make sense of what I was seeing. It moved through the bushes, causing leaves to quiver in its wake before it vanished as abruptly as it had appeared. The whole time I was on the phone with my sister, narrating the event in hushed, awestruck whispers. A wave of excitement washed over me, followed swiftly by a sharp jolt of fear. I quickly locked the door and rushed to check for my husband's twelve-gauge. Safety first, right? I didn't see the creature, the Sasquatch, after that day. But every now and then my dogs would bark in that same peculiar whimpering way, a bark different from their usual. It always made me wonder if they sensed its presence. Years later my sister was watching a documentary about Sasquatch sightings in the Portland, Oregon area, on the Learning Channel. It aired on Friday. October 27, 2000, and it brought back memories of our phone conversation that day. She called me excitement evident in her voice. She had done some research and found this website, and she urged me to document my sighting. It was a surreal experience, one that has stayed with me even after all these years. The memory of the creature and the rustling bushes is as clear as day, a reminder of the mysteries that our world still holds. I have worked many different jobs in my lifetime. Starting as a janitor, I worked on a farm for about two years. At one point later, as a PA teacher in a high school, I was even an officer before eventually moving to New Jersey and eventually getting a job as a park ranger in the Pine Barrens. I would moved to New Jersey to be closer to my family. The job didn't seem to be hard. I'd work four days a week, and I would spend all my time in the park. The other three would be my days off now I haven't worked for the park for a very long time, and I'm about to tell you why. I think I lasted a year, maybe even less than that. i had a series of very strange things happen to me there, and the final straw made me quit my job as soon as I got the chance. I began working at Pine Barrens in April of that year. I was introduced to the job in the park by Park Services. The place is humongous. It stretches over the area that is twenty-two percent of New Jersey. My job was to patrol a certain area, make sure everything was in order. If you've ever visited the Pine Barrens, you would know that abandoned buildings and towns were scattered throughout the park. I would clock in on a Tuesday, work through to Friday, and Saturday through Monday. The first couple of weeks went smooth. I was getting familiar with the woods and my route. My route? The third week was when my first spooky experience happened. It was Thursday evening. I was going my regular route. The park was buzzing with nature sounds. There were no people anywhere that I'd run into that day. I know that sometimes kids like to wander the park at night looking for ghosts or just a secluded place to hang, but I I had not seen any of them either. I was taking little mental notes of my surroundings, and I noticed the humming and buzzing. I couldn't tell where it was coming from at first. I looked around for a few minutes and still nothing. The noise was beginning to get closer, which is when I realized it was sneering me from above. I looked up and saw three bright lights moving in a circle, almost as if they were spiraling down towards me. Instinctively, I ducked and ran in as fast as I could. It probably ran for a couple hundred feet before turning around to see the lights were still there. They were not. There was no humming now, either. I dropped to the ground, trying to gather my composite and catch my breath. I also tried to make sense of what had happened five minutes prior. I do believe in aliens, even though I never had an encounter before. I had no clue what else it could have been. So i kind of been in agreement with myself. Those were aliens, and I wouldn't think about that anymore, and it was okay for a while. I have never seen those lights after that. My second experience happened about five months after I began working in the park. I was again going on my regular route. It was now about 7 p.m., and at this point, since it was October, the sun was getting very low in the sky, and it was getting dark. The route was clear. Everything seemed to be in order, until I noticed something lurking behind the trees about a hundred yards away from me. At first, it looked like a person, maybe a man about five, seven. I thought it might have been some college kid playing a prank, trying to scare me. I saw his shoulder peeking behind a tree. I yelled out that nobody is allowed to be in the woods this late in this time of year. He didn't move. Only after I shouted the third time, he had finally moved in front of the tree. I could take a good look at him. When I saw him, I nearly had a heart attack. He was dressed in dirty, torn-up clothing, but the most disturbing thing about him was his head, or lack of one, I should say. I looked at him, not knowing if I should ask what he was, what happened to him, or just bolt out of there as fast as I could. I didn't either, for a solid three minutes. I froze. Even though I noticed he had begun moving closer to me, I still could not lift a finger. He started running up to me. As he was getting closer, I realized he was also translucent. This was a poltergeist. Now, when it comes to an alien... I'm a believer. When it comes to ghosts, however, I was very skeptical and sarcastic at times that anybody would talk about ghosts or demons or any alleged paranormal activity. I moved to the right a couple of steps as he was running straight at me, and he just vanished. I turned around to see where he had gone, but there was no trace of him, only a vapory trail of mist, just what looked like a cloud of dust almost settling. After that second incident, I decided that all my love for nature and the outdoors, and as much as I loved being a ranger, staying here was not worth it. This hot mess of a place was not worth me going literally insane for, trying to keep working there. I called in the next day and explained the situation. They told me that something like this had already happened for their previous rangers. They tried to convince me to stay on the job for longer and doubled my pay, but I refused. I would not risk losing my own mind. Back in 2003, I was part of a seasoned hunting troop of 21 people. We were out in the wilderness looking for elk. Our journey led us to a cave near a national park, an unexpected finding on our hunting expedition. As we ventured into the cave, something peculiar started happening. Our flashlights flickered erratically, and the GPS devices we carried for navigation began to malfunction. The cave was more than just an empty hole in the mountainside. We discovered a hidden tunnel, a small obscured passageway that led to an expansive cavern. The moment we entered the cavern a chilling sensation washed over us. The air felt heavy, charged with an oppressive presence that caused an inexplicable surge of fear in even the bravest amongst us. Our instincts screamed at us to leave, but the explorer in us kept us rooted. Then we saw it. A figure, tall and pale, a grotesque distortion of the human form. Standing at the edge of our light's reach Its eyes glowed a sinister red Piercing the darkness Locking onto us Panic seized us A raw, primal terror That overrode all sense of reason We turned tail and fled Driven by the overwhelming need to escape In the years that followed My fellow hunters One by one fell ill They all succumbed to different forms of cancer As if whatever we'd encountered in that cave Had marked us, cursed us I am the sole survivor carrying the memory of that terrifying encounter. The records of our hunting expedition were lost, probably destroyed, leaving no trace of our encounter with the unknown. But I know what we saw, what we experienced. It was real, as real as the deaths of my fellow hunters, as real as the fear that still haunts me. A few years back my two friends and I embarked on a casual hike to a well-known spot in our area. It was a stunning 150-foot waterfall, a rewarding sight after an uphill trek of about 45 minutes. This particular day, instead of heading directly to the waterfall, we decided to go bouldering around its base. The area was brimming with intriguing rock formations and tranquil pools formed by the waterfall's runoff. This bouldering trail was off the beaten path not something many hikers ventured onto from the main trail. As we navigated the rocky landscape we came across a chilling sight, a young woman, just twenty-two years old, lying face down in the mud. Both her legs were grotesquely broken, bone piercing through skin in what were clearly compound fractures. She had no cell phone, no water, no food, and no means to keep warm. Immediately we dialed 911 and shared our limited supplies with her while we waited for help to arrive. It felt like ages before we heard the distant thrum of a helicopter. Soon, a rescue team swooped in, securing her for transport and flying her off to the nearest hospital. Later, we learned the harrowing details of her story. The previous night, she had been hiking with a friend when they both plummeted from the waterfall. Her friend, attempting to seek help, unfortunately succumbed to his injuries less than 100 yards from where we discovered the young woman. No one knew of their accident her injuries, or even their presence in that part of the trail. The thought of what she endured during those twenty agonizing hours alone in the wilderness still sends chills down my spine. It was nothing short of a miracle that she survived. Our decision to veer off the main trail that day, it turned out to be a life-saving one. I wake up to the sound of distant cries and the deafening roar of stalkers echoing through the ruins of our shattered world. The dystopian landscape is a haunting reminder of what humanity has lost. The sky, once a canvas of blues and whites, now swirls with an ominous reddish hue, a reminder of the chaos that rules our lives. In this unforgiving world, my name is Alex and my purpose is clear. Vengeance against the stalkers that took my family from me. As a determined and resourceful young woman, I have honed my skills to become a fierce hunter, driven by an insatiable thirst for justice. Alongside a group of survivors, we have formed a team dedicated to protecting what's left of humanity and eradicating the relentless predators that feed on our fears. Among the tales whispered in the cold nights is that of the hunter, a figure said to possess supernatural abilities and unmatched skills. Many dismiss the hunter as a myth, A fabrication designed to boost morale among the desperate survivors. But as I witness the horrors of this world every day, I cling to the hope that the hunter is real, a beacon of light in our darkest hours. During a perilous mission to rescue trapped survivors, we stumble upon eerie signs of the hunter's presence. Peculiar markings etched into the ruins and strange arrangements of objects make me wonder if we are being watched. My heart quickens, and my determination surges. Could it be true? Could the hunter be guiding us? As we journey through treacherous landscapes, facing one stalker after another, I feel a haunting presence lingering in the shadows. The line between myth and reality blurs as impossible feats and unexplainable occurrences surround us. It's as if the hunter's spirit guides our every move, driving us closer to the truth. The stalkers become more dangerous and erratic with each step we take, as if controlled by an unseen puppet master. Yet we press on, emboldened by the hope that the hunter's existence might be the key to our survival. My obsession with finding the hunter intensifies, intertwining with my thirst for vengeance. I can't help but think that harnessing the hunter's power could be the catalyst needed to avenge my family and defeat the relentless stalkers. As we draw near the heart of the mystery, we uncover dark secrets that have been buried for centuries. The truth reveals that some things are better left hidden, for they can shatter the very fabric of reality. But it's too late to turn back now. As the days grow darker and the nightmarish creatures draw closer, I am forced to confront my own fears and doubts. Can I trust the hunter's legend, or am I being led astray into a trap? My mind is a whirlwind of uncertainty, but one thing remains steadfast. My resolve to protect what's left of humanity. The climactic showdown looms ahead where the fate of our world hangs in the balance. The hunter's existence and our pursuit of vengeance become intertwined, and the horrifying truth reveals itself, a truth that threatens not just our lives, but the very essence of humanity. In the end, I am faced with a choice that will determine the path of our future. Do I continue down this dangerous road, hoping that the hunter is real, and that my thirst for vengeance will be sated? Or do I embrace the unknown, and place my faith in the strength of humanity, the unity of our survivors? the hope that we can rise above the darkness that engulfs us. As the final confrontation approaches, I know that whatever path I choose, it will forever change the course of our journey through this dystopian nightmare. And as I stand at the precipice of uncertainty, I can't help but wonder if, in this world of chaos and fear, there is still a glimmer of hope, a flicker of light that can lead us out of the shadows and into a new dawn.